I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The last 100 years has seen a rise in the proportion of college-educated women participating in work outside the home. About one-fifth of women who graduated from college in the first two decades of the 20th century were in the labor force in their mid to late 20s. In contrast, more than four-fifths of women who graduated from college in the last two decades of the 20th century worked outside the home while they were in their mid to late 20s. The flip side of this is the proportion of college-educated women married by age 30. Over 50% for those who graduated in the first two decades of the 20th century, as compared to a little over one quarter for those graduating in the last two decades. These statistics point to the choices that women have made and continue to make about balancing a career with raising children, and the choices that men have made and continue to make as well. This topic is explored by Professor Claudia Golden in her recent book, Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Towards Equity. Claudia draws on a wealth of statistics, empirical analyses, and even the reflection of these choices in novels and in television shows. Claudia Golden is the Henry Lee Professor of Economics at Harvard University. She became the first tenured woman in Harvard's economics department in 1990. She's a past president of the American Economic Association and co-directs the National Bureau of Economic Research's Gender in the Economy Study Group. Claudia, thanks very much for joining me on Econofact Chats. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Michael. Claudia, before we delve into statistics and empirical analyses, I'd like to ask you to discuss how you illustrate some of the major themes in your book through references to popular culture, like Mary McCarthy's 1963 novel, The Group, the influential book by Betty Friedan that came out in the same year, The Feminine Mystique, and TV shows like I Love Lucy, Father Knows Best, Perry Mason, and later The Mary Tyler Moore Show and 50 Rock. Well, it was a tremendous pleasure to use all of this evidence, these TV shows, to rewatch a very large number of them, in fact. So I used several influential books and some incredibly great writing. Uh, if you haven't read Mary McCarthy's The Group, read it. It will be as relevant for today as it was in her day. And of course, she was writing about a group of women who graduated college in 1933, although the book is published in 1963. So I also use many TV sitcoms, as we called them, to illustrate the themes and to demonstrate the enormous and occasionally rapid change that occurred, as well as some of the very important generational differences. So let me give you a great example, and that is Mary Richards, who is the protagonist on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and she was an unmarried college graduate around 30 years old 
1972. She lived in Minneapolis and she had landed a really great job in television. And during a visit from her parents, her mother happened to shout back to her father, don't forget to take your pill. And Mary and her father respond in unison, we will, you know, yes. And her father looks at Mary disapprovingly. So it shows us that sexual mores had changed very, very rapidly at that time. And the pill was an extremely important part of that. And this is a critical shift, as we're going to see in our discussions across the period of time. So the sitcom also illustrates not just the change, but the generational differences. And there's a lot more in the book that's just just so much fun to have written about. The family stories of the supposedly happy stay-at-home mom and father knows best, you know, where uh, the father didn't really know best, and the great Leave it to Beaver, which is really just about the kids, the fun-loving Lucille Ball, and I Love Lucy, who manages to comically stray from actually staying at home. She was supposed to stay at home, but she rarely did. And finally, Della Street, Perry Mason's right hand, who today would be the one with the law degree and not Perry. Yeah, I found the book Career and Family fascinating and really enjoyable, and not least because it reflects what I've seen over my life. When I was young, I saw very few of my friend's mothers work outside the home, but when my wife and I had children, we, like almost all of our friends, had both parents working outside the home. This anecdotal data is consistent with the statistics you present, and importantly, you document these choices not just over the past 40 or 50 years, but going back more than a century. Can you speak a little bit, Claudia, about the five groups of educated women, each one representing about a two-decade-long cohort that you identify and characterize? So it's really useful when you're dealing with such a long period in which there's so much change to divide them into these groups. And these groups divide sort of naturally by the desires and the achievements And they evolved from a group that wanted and got career or family, one got one, one got another, to those today who want career and family. And these divisions, as I said, come naturally from the outcomes in terms of the fraction married, the fraction with children, their labor force participation rates, and their achievement of what we might call career. And the groups are very, very different from each other, even though they differ in the year in which they're born by a very, very small amount. So I'll give you a sense of these differences, thinking about the beginning point, the in-between point, and the end point. So in the beginning, which I call, of course, group one, it's a group that graduated from college around 1900 to 1919. They had either a family or a career. There was rarely a case in which they could have both. In fact, around 50% never had or adopted a child, and about a third of these women never married. They're all college graduates. Let's fast forward to the next group, group three. There's a group two that's sort of a, uh, a, a group that connects the two. Group three graduated 
from the late 1940s to the mid-1960s, almost all in this group married, 91% in fact, and the vast majority had children. Among those who married, more than 90% had kids. So the difference between group one and group three is enormously large, even though they, in some sense, were the same women from the same types of families. And they had this group, group three, had family and then job, and they were the subjects of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. And if we just fast forward a little bit again, we get to the latest groups, groups four and five. And these groups greatly delayed children, greatly delayed marriage, while continuing with their educations and often cementing their career. And group four was this fairly pivotal group. I hate to say it, but it's my group. (laughs) And also, I mentioned Mary Richards. It was sort of just about her group as well. Their lives were greatly altered by a technology, one little pill called the pill, and the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the 1970s, it's really critical to realize just how much progress was made. Just 17% of group three achieved career and family when they were in their 50s, but twice that number, 35%, did for group five. So even though many today are frustrated that there isn't more change, we can see that there was enormous progress. And as I mentioned at the outset, this is about college-educated women, not all women in the country, right? Right. And the point about the pill is sort of a broader point is that there are these broad social changes and even scientific advances that help shape the different experiences across these groups, correct? Absolutely. So there are aspirations and achievements across this more than century-long period greatly changed, and the reasons for the changes differ with the period. So, for example, the labor market shifted its demands from brawn work, manufacturing, construction, to more brain work, the stuff that we do. And technologies changed what went on in the home. So think about the really elementary and important ones like electricity and clean water. And much later in this period, there was greatly improved fertility control that enabled women to delay marriage and delay childbearing. But the way work is structured and the persistence of social norms, no matter how much weaker they become, mean a lower ability for women, even with all these changes, to attain both career and family. There's a really interesting discussion in your book on gender wage discrimination. I remember people wearing pins in the early 1980s that said 59 cents. And the idea was that for every dollar that a man made, a woman made only 59 cents. In what way did that number accurately reflect gender wage discrimination? So let's go back to the numbers. So the 59 cents on the dollar slogan extended from around the 1960s to almost precisely in 1980, when the ratio began to climb considerably and the differences in earnings between the median man and the median woman who worked full-time year-round, which is how this single number is being produced, 
when that difference began to shrink. And of course, it doesn't really measure what we mean by the word discrimination. It measures the ratio of earnings for the median male, the median female, as I said, working full-time year-round. In fact, the fact that the ratio changed enormously around 1980 with advances in women's education and advances that we can measure in their labor market experience indicates that the huge 41 cent difference, that's 100 minus the 59, doesn't really measure discrimination because discrimination didn't just disappear. The comparison, therefore, wasn't exactly apples to apples, and thus it wasn't a true measure of the differences in earnings due to what we would think of as true discrimination in the workplace and in a particular establishment. So I guess we could figure out a more accurate number to put on a lapel pin these days, but this would miss a key point in your book, the challenges of balancing career and family and the economic consequences of what you call greedy work. In your book, you mentioned that when you were a graduate student at the University of Chicago, you would see an older woman carrying punch cards to the computer center. She was a retired professor, Margaret Gilpin Reed, whose work on the choices women make balancing jobs and family and the value of unpaid household work predated by decades work on those topics by the Nobel laureate Gary Becker. Your story at the outset of the book about this couple, Isabel and Lucas, illustrates these issues. Could you recount that example, please? So I'd very much like to, but first a little note about Margaret Gilpin Reed. So Margaret is an example of the career portion of Group 1, and that's where she enters the book. She also enters the book because she was a tenured member of the University of Chicago economics faculty. She never married. She had no children. She had this pretty amazing position. And she was just about the only female economist I knew of when I was a graduate student, but I didn't know her. And that sort of bothers me that there she was, and I never really, I don't remember a single time when I talked to her. And that's pretty terrible because, in fact, even though I thought of her as a member of sort of the ancients, I think I am older than she was at that time. So you are correct that she worked on understanding the value of unpaid household work and the problems of computing national income when individuals shift from the home to the market and when more goods are purchased rather than made in some ways at home. These are really huge and large and important issues in many developing nations even now. The movement of women from the home to the market is the single most important change in the labor force across the history of all nations. And we should put that out immediately, front and center. That's where this becomes so important. But let's fast forward to the world of couples today. And I'm going to talk right now about different sex couples, a man and a woman, both of whom work and who also have important care responsibilities. Let's say young children. Someone has to be on call at home. That parent would have an important job, but might have to drop it on a moment's notice on call at home. That job would be, let us say, less time intensive. 
And I tell a story of a couple. They're fictional in some ways, but they're modeled after a real couple named Isabel and Lucas. And they have the same level of education. They're both IT engineers. They can both take flexible jobs in IT engineering and earn about 150K a year, let's say. That's each of them. Or one could take a more time-intensive job and be on call, never really know if they have to drop things, leave home at two in the morning, and earn 180K a year. So they could both take the 150K a year job, but then they would be leaving money on the table, here 30,000. So they do something that many couples do. The woman in the couple here is the professional who's also on call at home. And the man, Lucas, is the professional who's also on call on the job. And he earns exactly 20% more than she does. And that's, in fact, the aggregate wage difference right now. So one of the things that attracted me about being a professor was that I would have the latitude to be a father who would be very present at home. And my wife had a very demanding job as an attorney. So, you know, in our situation, it was reversed. And I would tell people that as a professor, I could work any 60 hours a week I wanted. Another telling example in your book, and one that speaks to the possibility of diminishing these differences, is when you compare the changes in the work environment for pharmacists and how this compares to the work environment for lawyers. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So... There's a question about why someone actually earns a premium for this on-call job. So if an individual has a very good substitute, that little doppelganger, then any time that individual had to leave the office to take care of the kid, the nurse calls up, the kid needs someone, or any time the person had to take off time because their parent needed to be uh, ferried to some doctor's appointment, you could say to the doppelganger, your substitute, you could ask that person to do the work that you had to do. And there are lots of jobs where these substitutes exist. That doesn't mean that you become a commodity. It simply means that there is one really good and dependable substitute for you. And there are certain jobs in which there are groups that form, let's say groups of pediatricians, groups of veterinarians. And there are other jobs in which individuals, highly skilled, highly paid individuals like pharmacists, are simply very, very good substitutes for each other in part because we have incredibly good IT that gives pharmacists a tremendous amount of information about their clients. So I guess this points to the fact that time constraints are not immutable and balancing career and family can be more equitably distributed, perhaps because of these kinds of technological changes like IT advances. I would say that's absolutely right. These are not immutable. And to think of them as immutable to think that our prestige, who we are, is a function of the fact that no one can substitute for us, really also means that we are stuck with not being able to have a job that is compatible with the care demands that we many times want to provide. I think, you know, it's much easier to find somebody to teach my classes than when my children were small. 
to um, raise my children. So <laughs> there's different substitutability across different dimensions there. So Claudia, is there scope for public policy to help this along? And if so, what types of policies would be most effective? So I see that there are three areas in which one can make change, and I'll explain. One would be the price of care. So if care is very good, dependable, and not that expensive, it means that we can take children or our parents who may need care and have care be given to them by someone else. That's another type of substitute. But if it's very expensive or not dependable or not high quality, then one wouldn't want to do it. So the first thing has to do with the price and quality of that thing, care, that is coming between us and giving our all to the work. The second point and what we were just talking about is the price of flexibility. We often talk about flexible jobs or not flexible jobs. Every job can be flexible, but it may be that it would pay very little. I, you know, if I hire someone 40 hours a week and the person says, I only want to work 20 hours, I can say, sure, work 20 hours a week rather than being paid 50%. I'll pay you 30%. Well, that means that, that this flexibility is very expensive. So we have to think about ways of reducing the cost of flexibility. And I mentioned one, which is forming groups so that individuals have a substitute, have the doppelganger. And the third issue has to do clearly with gender norms. Why was it that with Isabel and Lucas, it was Isabel who was the one who took the less remunerative, flexible job, and Lucas took the more time-demanding and more remunerative job, leading him and all men, <laughs> in, in some sense, in consequence, to make more than women. It has to do with the social norms. Changing social norms is a lot more difficult. So these may not all be places for public policy, but certainly universal preschool in America is gaining ground. Subsidized daycare, not preschool, subsidized daycare, as exists in much of Northern Europe and in France, does not appear to be gaining much ground in the U.S. For one thing, it's very expensive. So these are such important issues, and I really appreciated you raising these in such an engaging way in your book, Career and Family. Thank you very much for joining me today, Claudia, and for writing such a terrific book. Well, thank you very much, Michael. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.